All right, good morning. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we've already made some very weighty statements this morning. That in Christ alone our hope is found. Or that you're all that our hearts are living for. I know for myself this, that's not true for me 24 hours of the day. That even though I'm saved, even though my faith is in Christ alone, there is still this struggle with sin each and every day. There are many moments, many moments of evidence in my life where I can honestly say that there are times when you're not all my heart is longing for. And in that, we can praise you. Just as Paul says in Romans, who can save us from this body of death that on one hand we we serve you but on the other hand we also serve this uh, the, the law of sin praise be to God that through Christ Jesus we are saved there's no condemnation for those in Christ that we know that we struggle we know that we fall into sin and temptation daily but yet we can still honestly say that that we are your children only because of what Christ has done for us. So bless our time this morning as we read your word and we study your word. And we pray that you change us through your word by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn your Bibles in John chapter 2 as we want to read directly from the text of the scriptures. And something amazing happened to me last night that... Uh, I slept for I think five hours straight last night, which is pretty amazing. Uh, uh, I think I think Jalen slept uh, uh, through our, our ten-month-old, and I, I do know one of our girls crawled in bed with with us at some point, but it didn't keep me up very long. Uh, and so, for all I know, I haven't talked to Manny yet this morning. So, for all I know, she was up all night and and she just dealt with everything. I don't know, but, <laughs> but normally I'm up at least two or three hours in each night with the kids, and so I'm just thankful that God blessed my sleep this this past evening. Um, if you're in John chapter two, uh, this is where we just covered in in the youth ministry a couple weeks ago. We're now in John chapter three in the youth ministry. And this text kind of deals with a couple very common questions that I think a lot of people will ask, especially in times of trouble, in times of doubt, during difficult times. People tend to ask two questions. If God exists, then is he powerful enough to, and you can fill in the blank, or if God really loves me, then if he truly loves me, then he will, and you could fill in the blank. I think these are statements or questions that people could uh, many times turn to in times of trouble, and they, they often won't know the answer to it. Uh, many times unbelievers, in their times of trouble, they'll just cry out to God in general, not knowing God through Jesus Christ, and they'll just cry out for help, and they'll say things like, God, if you're really out there, if you really have the authority uh, and sovereignty over this world, and you're supposed to be this all-controlling, all-powerful God, then you should be able to do something about my situation right here. Or people will say, God, if you really love me, like all those Christians always say you do, then if you really love me, then you will do this for me. 
And people often demand signs from God to prove that he loves them or to prove that he exists and that he, to prove that he's all-powerful. And so as we go on in John, we're going to see that John's mission to prove the deity of Christ continues. That, that every miracle, every sign, uh, every story of Jesus' life and his ministry in the Gospel of John is pointed to one central theme, and that is a point to the, the deity of Jesus. That he is fully man and fully God. That Jesus is not just a man who is empowered by God, he is a man that is God. And this is something that's even under attack in the church today. This idea that Jesus is God. And John saw the importance of this way back then when the church was just getting started to see the importance of writing his gospel to prove the deity of Christ. And so here we are in in John chapter 2. Let's read together uh, verses 13 to 25. It says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple. But with the sheep and the oxen, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which, was, which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man." Let's go back up to the top. Um, let's go through this verse by verse. In verse 13 to, to 14, we start off this passage. The Passover of the, of the Jews was near and when Jesus went to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And, and so what we're going to see in a moment is another sign from Jesus that he indeed has all authority in heaven and from God uh, to do the things that he's doing on earth. And this is a question throughout Jesus' ministry that they question him if he has the authority to forgive people's sins. And they question him if he has the authority to break the Sabbath. Well, they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. They question him if he he had the authority to spend time with sinners without being affected by their uncleanliness, uh, affecting him as as a teacher. And so all the Pharisees were always attacking Jesus' authority, questioning how can this man do these things and claiming that God is his father. And here's another example. So in that time, in the Feast of Passover, this is one of the three uh, feasts where all the men of Jerusalem or all the men of Israel were to gather together and, uh, uh, to celebrate the three feasts. And this is one of them. There's Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, there's Feast of the Beginning of the Harvest, and then there's a Feast at the End of the Harvest. 
And all these three times are uh, annual feasts where all the men, uh, usually ages 12 and older, would gather together. So this is one of the most crowded times in Jerusalem, with it being also uh, leading up to Passover, where they look back to when God freed them from slavery in Egypt. And so almost every house to be filled, every, every nook and crane where you could fit a person to sleep, uh, people would use uh, this as opportunities to make money. They would charge people to sleep in their places. And so there would be hardly any room left in Jerusalem for everyone is gathered all around to come to this, to worship the Lord, to offer up all their offerings and their sacrifices and their burnt offerings and their, their uh, sin offerings or guilt offerings. And so it wasn't so much that the, the animals were a problem, it was what they were doing in the temple area. And you can see this, if you want to uh, read the historical uh, background of this, as we are reading through the Old Testament right now, uh, this is a good example of why it's important to know the Old Testament, especially as Pastor Randy said last week, it's easy to start tapering off we're reading through the Old Testament when you get into Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But those two books have a lot to do with this passage right here in the context of what Jesus is, is doing. And so you can look back at Exodus 23 and, and see the command of these three national feasts. You can look back at Exodus 30 and see that, that all males 20 and older were to, to pay this temple tax, which is why there would have been money changers there. You can look back at Deuteronomy 14, where God gives instructions for those who are traveling too far to bring their offerings, which would be their money or their animals and their, their grain offerings and everything else. If you had to travel too far to carry all those things, God made provisions for them to sell all that stuff, just bring the money with you, and then when you get to the temple, then you can buy whatever you want with it, and that will be your offering to the Lord. It's the stuff that your, your first fruits and everything else that you sold for money. So you won't have to bring all this cattle, all this animal, all these animals with you. You just bring your money, and then you spend it at the temple or uh, for your temple worship. So you can look back in the Old Testament for the history of all these things. And so here we see in uh, verse 15 to 17, it's when Jesus takes action. He, he made a scourge of cords. In other, words, in other words, he made a whip and drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep and oxen, and he poured out all the poured out the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, "Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business." And his disciples remembered that it was written, "Zeal for your house will consume me." So the problem isn't so much that they were selling animals, that they were supposed to be doing that. They were supposed to make provisions for all those people who came with their money. They should have a way to buy animals to make their offering to the Lord. The problem was with where they were doing it. And they were doing it in the temple, which was the place of worship. And with this being the most crowded time throughout the year in all of Jerusalem, being as crowded as it was, and having all the animals in there and the money changers and everyone else, uh, we also get this idea that the money changers weren't completely just. That in the other three Gospels, they, they tell another account of another time when Jesus cleansed the temple in a very similar way. Only Jesus used the phrase, you're turning my father's house, the a house of prayer, into a house of robbers. And so we do get this idea that not only were they uh, selling things in the temple area where they should have stayed out of and, and reserved that area for worship, but they were also that we get this idea that they were also cheating people and extor uh, uh, extorting people for their money because knowing that they, they had little options at that point, bringing their money from home. 
So we see a lot of unjust things happening. But not only that, there would have been the noises and the smells and the, and the people, all the chatter in the background when it's supposed to be a place of worship. And so what was lost in this whole idea of offering, bringing these offerings to the Lord was that there is no longer this authentic worship taking place. It was not genuine anymore. It was, it was in other words, it was, it, you could call it heartless worship. And it's see a good example of how God feels about heartless worship. And when we bring people to bring sacrifices in an unworthy manner, uh, turn with me briefly, if you know where it is, go to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet Isaiah, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and, and he had all bad news for, for the nation of Israel. This is what led up to their being taken into captivity and many people dying at the punishment and the wrath of God back then because of their evil practices. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, he says, "What are you, This is God speaking. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. That gives us a good picture of just how long this behavior has been going on. This wasn't something that just happened all of a sudden, and now Jesus is deciding to deal with it. This has been happening for years and generations, and it's been a pattern for the nation of Israel uh, throughout their time since they were saved uh, from Egypt. So we get this idea that there's a lot of unjust things going on. There's no longer this authentic worship happening. And so Jesus drives them out, and we see how God feels about that in Isaiah 1. This idea of approaching God in worship with no authenticity, no, no uh, genuine heart of worship, no brokenness, no humility, no understanding of what God has done for us. That everything in, in Israel's history were to point back to when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Everything were to point back to that moment for they were to never forget the day that God led them out of Egypt. And as Christians today, we are to remember the day when God set us free from our slavery to sin. That we are to never forget the debt that God paid for us through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, through the death and resurrection on the cross. That everything in our life now is to point back to the cross to when we could say, this is when I was set free from the law of sin and death. So where is the temple today? I think a lot of times we could approach church as if it's a, a sort of temples. 
uh, I wouldn't call it a temple, but it's where we gather together to worship together and to sing praise to the Lord together and to learn together and to fellowship with one another, like what Andy was saying at the beginning of the service this morning, that, that gathering together on Sunday morning is very important for the Christian lifestyle, that we may never uh, uh, forsake gathering together and encouraging one another. But there's a lot of times when I think people come to church for the wrong reasons. Or maybe they might be confused on why we come to church. There's many people who you might ask if they were to go to heaven when they die. There's a myriad of answers you could receive from them. Many people might say, well, I go to church every Sunday. And that's why I'll go to heaven. Or I gave money to the church. Or, or I try to be as good as possible. And they use all these other answers except for the one reason why we can actually worship God is because of Christ. And so my fear is that there's many people who, who come to church on Sundays, at any church in, in the Brentwood area or around the world, and they, have this, they might have this understanding that just coming to church is enough to worship the Lord. And that they can live their life Monday through Saturday however they want. This would describe the type of worship that God was angry with in Isaiah chapter 1. Think that we could just show up to church on Sunday sing some songs, or just come with, come to church with someone, come to church with our families, or whatever it might be, and then leaving, feeling as if we have pleased God somehow, but yet living life completely our own way throughout the rest of the week. But the actual temple would be, I would say, it would be our bodies. We get this idea that now that we have the Spirit of God living in us, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you that you've received from God, therefore honor God with your body? And so we have this idea that, that the Spirit of God is living in us now, and the temple is where the Spirit of God dwelt, where they came to meet with God. Well, now as Christians today, as we have the Spirit of God living in us, we are meeting with God constantly. Where we go, we subject the Spirit of God to. The things we say, we subject the Spirit of God to. Or we glorify Him with. And so we have to have this understanding that wherever we go, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that our genuine worship should be taking place in our lives, throughout our bodies. The context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is the idea that they, they were trying to worship the Lord through temple prostitutes. That they were still having sex with prostitutes at the temple, thinking that it was glorifying God. And Paul says to them, do you not know that when you join your body to the prostitute, you become one with them? And that's where it comes, 619, where he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're subjecting the Holy Spirit to this behavior. So we are the temple Today. We also get this idea that as we gather together as a body of Christ, that we are the temple. Uh, we are all, uh, many members of one body. So when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we are the body of Christ. We are a temple of sorts, worshiping the Lord all in unity in, in our faith in Christ. And so as we worship together, uh, we should be worshiping the Lord uh, as one body in Christ, as one larger version of a temple of God. Uh, R.A. Torrey puts it this way. Uh, you know, when we think about, can we truly offer up every thought, every word, every deed of your past? Let's just take the last 24 hours. Can we honestly say that every word and thought and thing that we did in and outside of our home is worthy of lifting up to the Lord in worship? 
And so we have this reality that we have to face that not everything we do pleases the Lord. Uh, Ari Torrey is one of the founders of Biola University down in Southern California. Uh, he, he wrote this a long time ago. And I think I've used this quote before. He relates the spirit of God uh, to a mother whom a son or a daughter would not ever want to hurt, ever. You know, this idea that the, a son is going to place his hand on the door of sin, and the only thing that keeps him from sinning is thinking, what would his mom think? How would it affect his mom if she found out that he did this? And he, so he continue, continues on in this quote. He says, But there is one who is holier than any mother, one who is more sensitive against sin than the purest woman who ever walked this earth, and who loves us as even no mother ever loved. This one dwells in our hearts, if we are really Christians. And he sees every act we do by day or under the cover of night. He hears every word we utter in public or in private. He sees every thought we entertain. He beholds every fancy and imagination that is permitted even a momentary lodging in our mind. And if there is anything unholy, impure or selfish, mean or petty, unkind or harsh, unjust, or any evil act or word or thought or fancy, he is grieved by it. The worship that was going on in the temple at this time was heartless. They were simply act, offering these, these sacrifices up to the Lord, and they completely lost the understanding of what it means to have a contrite spirit, to be humbled before God, to be broken before God, to understand what, what God did to free them, their, their, their generations and generations before that, uh, from Egypt and their slavery. How God showed them unconditional love, how God chose the nation of Israel before they ever chose him. That it was by God's grace that the nation of Israel was chosen to be God's people. They had forgotten all this, and their worship was heartless. We move on in verse 18. Now that he's upset everybody, uh, they ask him, they ask Jesus in verse 18, the Jews then said to him, which by the way, this is another sign of Jesus' God, God-given authority, that somehow Jesus, not being a Pharisee, not being, not being anyone that they would have recognized as having a lot of authority at that time, really kind of a nobody in a lot of ways, somehow he managed to drive everyone out of the temple with seemingly no resistance. Everyone listened to him. All the animals scattered out. And somehow Jesus was actually able to drive everyone and everyone, uh, everything out that wasn't supposed to be there. And so it was only by the authority of God that, God was able, that Jesus was able to do that. So somehow, in, in their minds, they're thinking somehow everyone's listening to this man. And they say this, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? In other words, what sign is, does Jesus, can, can he show them to show that he has the right to regulate the worship of God? That only God can tell people how to worship him. And here is Jesus telling them that they're doing it wrong. And God gave them how to worship, all the laws and everything else, how to worship them properly through all the feasts and the sacrifices and the law and everything else. God regulates his own worship. He tells us how to worship him. Uh, this flies right in the face of many uh, uh, modern theologies that say, I love the Lord how I want to love him. 
Or that's not the God who I worship. The God that I worship, he likes it when I do this or that. God regulates how we are to worship him. And so they're asking Jesus now, what gives Jesus the authority to regulate the worship of God in this temple? He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Well, the, the, the honest part of that was it hadn't been built in 46 years. they have been working on it for the last 46 years after it had already been built. And so there's something called the Herodian expansion, where Herod uh, made his own expansions and, and uh, uh, renovations to the temple, and it's been going on for 46 years now, uh, kind of like the, the Anderson building over there where some of us, it feels like it's been 46 years, and, and for how long it's taken us to get the carpet down, and get things painted, and get the lights installed, and everything else, and someone were to, if someone were to come by and say, destroy this building, and we'll have it ready for you in three days. And we're like, are you kidding me? Do you know how long it took us just to get this far? And that would have been the, a similar mentality for them. That they've been working on this, making renovations for the last 46 years, to where uh, some people say that it wasn't even completed until, and not even when Jesus died, it wasn't even done. Some people believe it wasn't even finished when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The, uh, and other, others think it was uh, uh, finished at 63 AD, which a few years before they, it got destroyed uh, by the Romans. And, and uh, even then, if it was finished in 63 AD, well, they only got to enjoy it for seven years. And so Jesus confuses them now and perplexes them, saying, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. This temple that Jesus is coming into, regulating the worship of God in, and now he's telling them that he has the power to raise it up. We see now that he alludes to something even greater. The Jews then, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 21, John reports, he says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what, that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is now alluding to his resurrection, his coming resurrection, that when they kill him on the cross, and they bury him, he will raise himself in three days. Why? Because he is fully man and yet fully God, able to defeat death itself. And this is just another way that Jesus once again proves the authority that he has to do the things that he does in his ministry. Because later on, like it says here, the disciples remembered what he said. When they saw him resurrected, they remembered that Jesus said he would raise in three days. And it strengthened their belief. Finally, uh, the last few verses, we see now the aftermath. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Once again, proving his authority, that he knows the hearts of all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus displays super knowledge, supernatural knowledge for knowing people's hearts now. And this idea that people believed in him, we, we uh, have to be careful in the sense that they didn't believe in him to be the Messiah. 
which is why, G, why, why John writes now, uh, he was not entrusting himself to them because he knew their hearts. Jesus always had crowds following him when he was doing signs and miracles. People were enthralled with him. They were uh, infatuated by his signs. When people saw people getting healed, they would bring their sick and their, their children to be healed by him and blessed by him. But in the end, they, many of them turned around and denied him being the Messiah. That for a little while they believed in him, but then what really what came to was they didn't truly believe in him. That they loved the signs he was doing. He loved the healings he was performing, the miracles he was doing. And, and that was powerful and gave them hope in, in a time of oppression from the Roman government. And they were hoping that Jesus was going to be something that he ended up not being for them. That he was something much greater than they, than they thought he would be. And so a lot of people turned away from Jesus because they didn't truly accept him as being the Messiah. They wanted, in their minds, they thought he was going to be something more. When in reality, Jesus was something more, but not in the way that they wanted him to be. And this takes us back to our, the first two questions. You know, if God exists, why doesn't he do this? Or if God loves me, then why won't he do this in my life? If God really wanted me to worship him, then why doesn't he give me more signs so I can know that he's there and I can know that he loves me? God, show me your authority over my life and in this world, and then, and then I'll worship you. That's essentially what people are asking. And this passage, this, this passage gives us a lot of wisdom and a lot of hope uh, to those questions, to those problems that we face. I think people tend to look for all the wrong signs when they want to know if God loves them or if God exists. People look to, has God given me enough money? Has God given me enough family and friends in my life? Has God cured me of depression or all my anxieties? Has God, has God uh, taken all my, all my hurts and my pains away? Or if God loves me, then why did he allow this car accident to happen or this loved one to be taken suddenly? And we look for all these external signs. And there are a lot of people out there who believe that God loves them very much only because of the things that they have. That there's many celebrities and many, many athletes and, and people who are much less wealthier than that, but still wealthy by many, by many means, who will think that God loves them only because of the things they have in this world. And people who base their love of, their, their love of God on purely on what they have in this world will not be saved. Because ultimately, the only way for someone to know if God truly loves us, for me to know if God truly loves me, is by acknowledging what Christ did on the cross for me. There's many other ways I could think that God loves me, but if I deny the cross, then all my thankfulness and all these other things is all for nothing. If I deny what God did to pay my debt, to make it away from me who deserves eternal punishment for my sin, if I deny that stuff, if I deny the cross, then I'm not really acknowledging God's love for me. And in fact, I'm rejecting God's love for me. Now, I fear that many people will think themselves to be saved because they think God has blessed them with many things in this life. And they think that they're okay. They must be okay because God has given them a long and happy life. God has made them very healthy. God has given them lots of family and friends and lots of money or a job they've always wanted to have. And there are a lot of people who will base their love of God, their, God's love for them 
just based on those things. That's a very dangerous place to be. Uh, we see a lot of proof in, in the text. I mean, we see here Jesus alludes to the cross as, as to what's going give, what gives him the authority to do all these things. In the very same way, when we look to know if God loves us, we go to the cross. Uh, scripture says in John 3.16, later on in, in the Gospel of John, that for God to love the world because God gave us lots of money. Right? No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We see this again in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have this understanding, if we're going to know that God loves us, we have to know the meaning of the cross. When we evangelize the people, we can't, we can't just say, Jesus loves you and God loves you and just leave it at that. Because they can interpret that in, in many different ways. We have to make sure we, we explain the gospel, the, the, explain the cross to people if we're going to explain God's love to people. Because if we just tell people that God loves you, Jesus loves you, most likely they'll get the, the idea that they're okay where they're at. And being content with all and being happy and feeling blessed with all the stuff we have in this world, none of that leads us to repentance. None of that leads us to this understanding that we are sinful people and, and that we are utterly uh, um, uh, broken without the Lord, that we, we can't even approach God in worship without having our sin issue taken care of. If we just bask in the, the, the greatness of all the things that we have and all, uh, how happy we are, that does not lead us to humility. It doesn't lead us to repentance. And God wants us to understand that we are sinful people. It's only by his love and his grace that we could be made right again. A person can only genuinely worship God when they've repented of their sins and they've been reconciled to God. This is a, it could be a difficult idea for some but it is impossible to truly worship God if sin is still separating us from him. That God does not tolerate sin in his presence. And we get this idea in Psalm 51, you know, creating me a pure heart, give me clean hands, uh, give me a contrite spirit. Isaiah 6, when I, the prophet Isaiah gets this vision from the Lord, he understands that, that he's, the things that he's seeing, the throne of God, the, the, uh, the, throne, the, the train of his robe filling the temple with glory, he realizes that he shouldn't be anywhere near there because he's afraid he's going to drop dead. And he says, woe is me, I have unclean lips. And so what does is, what is the, uh, the angel do? He comes to Isaiah with a burning coal and touches his lips and says, your iniquity has been removed from you, your sins have been forgiven. In other words, he's saying to Isaiah, don't be afraid of dying in this moment because I've made it possible for you to see the things you're seeing because your sin is no longer separating you. Your sin is no longer an issue. You are now clean before the Lord. Romans 7.25, I'm just going to read this, this idea that, that uh, if we're not in Christ, we cannot possibly worship God because we can't even approach God. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 7.25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. 
Therefore, there's no condemnation for those in Christ, or for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life is in Christ Jesus, uh, set you free from the law of sin and death. So each and every time we look in Scripture in terms of how we worship God, it cannot be done without having our sin taken care of. And that's what Jesus does for us as our high priest. In Hebrews 4, it it tells us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because Jesus is our high priest. We have Jesus constantly interceding for us. So as soon as we sin, we are as quickly forgiven. There is another notion out there that because we're Christians, we no longer sin. Uh, That's false. I know that's false because I know I'm saved and I know I sin. But uh, what I think that people are trying to get at when, when they say that phrase is the idea that our sins are not counted against us. That with Jesus interceding for you and me constantly, it means that you are always ready for death. It means that as soon as you sin, it's as quickly forgiven. And if you were to die in that moment, your sin has been taken care of. It doesn't mean that you no longer sin. You will sin the rest of your life. But it means that your sin is always taken care of. So that you will always be ready for the moment. What is that song saying? Christ alone. Till he returns or calls me home. Right? So having Jesus intercede for you and me. Because of what he did for us on the cross. Taking the penalty of our sin for, upon himself. We are always ready to be called home. We, we still sin. But our sin will always be taken care of. Lastly, uh, you know, if this is the only way that we can worship God is when our sin's taken care of. Something else happens. You know, as we're, we're talking about signs, and the only true sign that, that we can know that God loves us, instead of looking for all these other signs, we look to the sign of the cross. Well, something happens when we acknowledge the cross, and we then become a sign of sorts, that we become beacons of God's love. That now we are exhibiting the effects that, God, that God's love has on a person. That when those who have truly been changed by God's love, they will now start loving differently. And there's plenty of places in Scripture to talk about how if, if we are to live this Christian life, God's love, exhibiting God's love, is one of those key things that will prove how God's love has affected you. Jesus says that apart from him we can do nothing. In other words, apart from Christ, we can't do anything that glorifies God. We can't do anything that bears fruit, that that brings God glory. Without Christ, anything we do as an act of worship means nothing to the Lord. In 1 John, it's a famous verse that says, We love because, why? He first loved us, right? God loved us first through the cross. I think one of the keys here is talking about the difference between worldly love and godly love because if our love is supposed to separate us from the rest of the world. and with, uh, In our culture today, we have many divisive issues, uh, many traps that Christians fall into, uh, getting into meaningless arguments and getting into uh, hateful language towards the other side. We have, we have many issues today that Christians need to stand very strongly on but still exhibit the love of God through. We have issues like abortion, and LGBTQ issues, and things like that that are very divisive in our culture today. And many Christians fall into this trap of not exhibiting the love of God when they get into conversations on those topics. Many resort to just keyboard warriors, where they get into debates and arguments and name-calling online, 
but seldom will you find them getting into a conversation with an actual person, which shows to me that people are very ill-equipped to actually have a biblical conversation on these topics. They're sharing mere feelings and emotions or traditions that they grew up with and not going to the Word of God and maybe not, not being held accountable for the words that they say to one another. The worldly love says this. Here's the main difference I see between worldly love and godly love. If we're going to be people who have supposedly been affected by, by the cross, that we have acknowledged what Christ has done for us and forgiven us of all our sin, and we've been affected, we have seen that sign of God's love for us, and now we've been affected by it. Worldly love, I think, does this. You know, we, they will love those who agree with them. And, and us as Christians will be many times called bigots or we'll be called hateful people because we don't agree with things or we just we think uh, we, we, we make judgments on uh, and there are judgments. We judge things as immoral. We get that wisdom from Scripture. We could confidently say that this is wrong and this is immoral and this is wrong in the eyes of God. But the rest of the world will see us as being hateful and being bigots. And so they won't want to share anything lovingly with us. Godly love says this. Godly love says that I, as a Christian, I'm willing to share the gospel message with you with the potential of us spending eternity together. See, on the other side, they won't want to spend time with us. You know, they, they won't want to spend any extended time with us if we disagree with everything they, they, they believe. Or they won't want to talk to us for very long. They'll want to go to dinner with us. They don't want to uh, have us over to their house uh, to hang out. They won't want our kids to play together. Uh, all these kinds of things. But as a Christian, we have the gospel message that changes hearts, that only God can soften our hearts. And, and if we are truly loving then even those who hate our ideas and who hate God currently, we are willing to share the message to them that we're potentially, if they were to receive that message, we would be spending eternity with them. As a Christian, I'm essentially saying, I'm willing to take a chance to spend eternity with you. Even though this is how you think right now, this is how you live right now, I'm willing to share this awesome thing, this awesome gift of God's love with you to where things could change. You and I could be worshiping God together forever, regardless of the sins that you committed, regardless of the sins I've committed, that we could worship in unity all because of Christ. I think there's a lot of Christians who uh, purposely withhold the gospel sometimes from sharing the gospel with, with certain people because of their feelings towards them. Or we just don't care. These people feel this way. These people did that. These people are in jail for this, and we have no desire whatsoever to see them saved. And that's actually a murderous attitude. You see, what God's love does, it's, I think what most people think in their, in their minds, they're thinking, well, I don't want to spend eternity with these people, but these nice neighbors over here with the cute kids and the small, their kids are the same age as my kids, and they're the same age as us, I would love for them to become Christian. I'd love for them to come to church and, and, and uh, hopefully they receive the gospel. And we started picking and choosing who we want to spend eternity with. But the reality is, you know, we, we try to avoid this idea of, well, I don't want these people to go to heaven. You know, these murderers, these 
sexual abusers, which is right now is really rampant in our country, as we see through the news. We, we see all these people in prison for the worst possible crimes. And we say, I don't want them to be in eternity with me. The reality is we're already spending eternity with many other murderers and adulterers and liars and thieves. You know, I'm just talking about the people in this room, right? You say, hey, on, you call me a murderer? And a thief and a liar and an adulterer? Well, Jesus set us straight when he further defined what those terms mean. That to hate someone is committing murder in your heart. To look at another person lustfully is committing adultery in your heart. And so, yeah, the people in this room, we're going to be spending eternity together, and yet we're a bunch of liars, adulterers, thieves, murderers. So who are we to say, these people shouldn't be spending eternity with me? We're committing, a, we're committing murder in our hearts when we withhold the gospel from people. Now that's not going to change God's sovereign plan for them, because regardless of what you do and don't do, they might be your brother or sister in Christ tomorrow. And what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about your feelings towards them when they're saved? And God has, the, the scriptures have plenty of implications to that, what it means to hate a brother or sister in Christ. And so we have our repentance still, uh, that we need to, our heart of repentance that is, should still be very active throughout the rest of our life as Christians, because we are full of unrighteousness. We are full of sin, and that's why we can rejoice in Christ. I hope that you guys can uh, pray and, and, and meditate over the questions in your, in your notes. Um, I hope those bring to mind things that you know of yourself, that unrighteous things in your life that, that, that Jesus is constantly interceding for you for, upon. That as you sin, it's, it's quickly forgiven. Because we want to be people who authentically worship the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you. Thank you for the blood of Christ that was shed for us on the cross. The one true sign to know that you love me, regardless of the persecutions, regardless of the trials, regardless of financial uh, struggles, regardless of all the pain and hurt that goes along with his life, I don't look to those things to know whether or not you love me. I look to the cross to know that regardless of what I go through in this life, I know that you love me because you are going to spare me from the punishment of my sin that I deserve. You truly love me because you made a way for my debt to be paid, my bill to be taken care of, that it would take me eternity to pay off. And you accomplish that with one act of righteousness in Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who is right now asking those questions. Does God love me? Does God exist out there? Show me a sign. God, I pray that you show them the sign of the cross. That you could affirm them of, the, of your love for them. That they would receive you by faith in Christ. That you showed your love to them first by sending Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. That they might believe in him and have eternal life. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.